Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning, we're uh, continuing our uh, series on engagement. We believe that uh, engaging with people outside of our church is important and, and a value of our church. It is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ. Christ left his home in glory and came into this world as a human being to reach out to people who didn't know him, to us, to all of us. And we're replicating that, uh, that, that act of love through our love as we reach out to others with the message of Jesus Christ. And as I was looking at last week's sermon, I hope that you, know, you remembered that I was reminded of last week's sermon. Uh, a lot of those points are similar to the points in my sermon today. Because we're really uh, talking about this need to go beyond our current situation and to reach out to people who need to hear the gospel. And we do that uh, by making connection with people. Um, and that is essential. Let me see. Uh, all right. Uh, as we prepare to look, I, I, would like, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at John chapter 5, 1 through 18. And this is an interesting passage of Scripture. It picks up on some of the themes that we've been talking about with engagement, reaching out to people that uh, aren't necessarily a part of our church group. We're looking at uh, reaching out to friends and family and neighbors and people in our city and, and then reaching out in the, in the country and, and in around the world with the gospel. Um, but one of the important things that always comes up when we start to talk about sharing the good news is the question of the hiddenness of God. It is a perplexing problem for unbelievers because oftentimes they want to know if God is real and if he is a, a gracious God who wants to have a relationship with me, then why doesn't he show me in a more dramatic way? Christians also struggle with the hiddenness of God because whenever we encounter situations in our life that are challenging and difficult and we expect God to do this or that or to help us in this situation or that situation, sometimes we look around and say, well, I don't see God at work in my life. This is a common problem and it happens in our lives, and we try to assess why this happens. And I want to do a little theorizing with you. Some Christians have tried to give explanation to this hiddenness of God because of who God is. Maybe because God is so transcendent, he's so far above us, that this kind of hiddenness is the only way he commu can, can communicate with us. It's the only way that he can 
try to open our eyes to the reality of who he is because he is so different and so other than us. It's just a part of the relationship. Or others have said, well, it's because God is spirit. And because God is spirit, he's so different from us that he can't communicate in that way that we expect. Um, or others have tried to say, well, uh, maybe just because God is omnipresent, because he's everywhere, then it, we just can't seem to see his presence with us everywhere. And I, I think when it comes to the hiddenness of God, I don't think that that is probably the, the best way to give explanation to the hiddenness of God. I actually think that one of the ways that, or one of the reasons that God is hidden to some degree is because God has a purpose for us to learn something about ourselves, to learn something about himself, about who he is, and to bring us to a place so that we can grasp who he is. You know, uh, in, the, in the scriptures, all through the scriptures, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 16, the religious Pharisees kept coming to Jesus and saying, show us a sign, do a miracle, perform a miracle. You remember when Jesus, when, when Paul was brought in before King Agrippa, he wanted him to perform a miracle. Or, you know, and uh, so there, there were these anticipation, expectations that if, if you really are, doing God's work, then you should be able to show up and, and prove it, demonstrate it. It reminds me of uh, a Yale professor from, uh, uh, in philosophy who was an atheist. His name was uh, Professor Hansen, who said that, you know, I really want God to, uh, you know, I've spent my years, he was trying to convince everyone, I spent my years talking about how God doesn't exist and that he's not real. Uh, but just so that I can show that really I'm not really against God. I'm, I'm open to the possibility of God. As a matter of fact, I have a proposal. How about next Tuesday, just after breakfast, all of a sudden, you know, the earth would just ring out with a terrible sound that would pierce everybody's ears and all the leaves of the trees would fall down and, and the, the heavens would open up and everybody would see this powerful, gigantic figure like Zeus of mythology terrible and powerful and and he'd have a frown on his face and he'd pull his hand out and point his finger at Hanson and say I've had about enough of you with all your followed up logic and arguments and and your misreading of the scriptures I just want you to know that I sure do exist and then he'd be satisfied uh, well, well sometimes people and us, and we want to see God in that dramatic kind of way. But I think that God doesn't do those kinds of things because we have to understand who we are. It's not because of who God is, but it's who we are. Can we understand, can we grab a hold of the magnitude and majesty of God and relate to God in a way that is right and pure and good. All you have to do is kind of look down through history and see all the people who say that they had these ominous, close encounters with God where they seen visions and things. And they're kind of off the rails. They're, they're, they're explanations. They become prideful or they become discouraged 
there is a sense in which the revelation of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus is very unique in that he is seeking to communicate to us himself, God, his greatness, the creator of the universe, in a way that we can really comprehend him. And the best way that we comprehend him is through Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus Christ teaches us in the revelation of God is that we are broken we are wretched, we are sinners, we have gone our own way and rejected the good news of the gospel. We have rejected God's original intent in our creation to live as his people under his rule and authority. We have to let that seep deep within our hearts and our lives to have a good view of who God is. Then at the same time, coupled with that, we have to believe that God created us as unique, precious, glorious human beings who are made in his image and reflect his glory. And so in order to see God as he truly is, we have to come to a real understanding of both of those things. And that's why Jesus Christ came into our broken world as one of us. And that's why he works through the truth of the promises of God and the revelation of God through the Old Testament and then embodies that revelation in himself so that we can see our brokenness by looking at the perfect Christ who fully fulfilled God's plans and purposes by his holy life. And we see that I'm, I'm far from Jesus. But then at the same time, through the life of Christ, we see the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance of God by Christ's sacrifice on the cross and inviting us to come and trust in this Savior who will give us life. Life like we have never known it. Life that will be eternal. Life that is bringing us into the very life of God. In this revelation, we're able to see both of those things. And that's the beauty of the coming of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I go into all of that because in this account of Scripture, we have this unique kind of uh, hiddenness being played out by Christ himself while he is bringing the good news of God into the world. So let's read John chapter 5, and we're going to read first 1 through 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, 
Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid answered, or replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down before me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up your, to pick, uh, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now this is kind of an interesting story. It's kind of surprising, is it not, that Jesus healed the man and he doesn't know who he is. It kind of lends itself towards this topic of the hiddenness of God. But I do think there are some lessons that we want to grab out of here. First, we learn the importance of connecting with human need. And this is certainly a common theme when we start looking at how Jesus engaged the people around him and how he models for us engaging with the world around us. Jesus was connecting with human need. The setting, as it says in verse 1, was a Jewish festival. And in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10, John is starting to put Jesus or tell about Jesus going to these festivals that took place in Jerusalem and that these festivals had Old Testament background and they were celebrating God's provision for his people in Israel, God's deliverance for his people in, in Israel and celebrations of God's deliverance and John tells about Jesus going to Jerusalem at each one of these festivals and then pointing to himself as the ultimate Savior, the one that they are really pointing to in these festivals. Jesus is here on the scene for them to realize that he is the Savior. Now this festival, and that, that happens like in chapter 6 is the Passover festival. In chapter 7 and 8 is the festival of tabernacles. And Jesus is there interacting in that time. In chapter 10, it's the festival of Hanukkah. In each of these, Jesus makes a clear statement about who he is. But in this passage... It says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We don't know exactly which one. It doesn't say what that festival was. But one of the high points or important points of this festival was that it was on the Sabbath. And some think it was a Sabbath festival because it started the, the series of festivals. And that the Sabbath plays such an important role in this story. So Jesus shows up in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and what does he do? Does he go to the center of the festival? Does he go where everybody is hanging out, where all the celebrations are? Maybe 
where all the booths are, where you buy the crafts and you get the, 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 you know, the funnel cake and all that stuff? No. Uh, Jesus goes to the pool, the pool of Bethsaida. And it's near the sheep gate. Now this pool uh, has an interesting story surrounding it. There's a couple of things that's kind of fascinating. First, uh, there, they could never locate a pool in Jerusalem. And so for years they criticized John as making up stories about uh, the life of Jesus and that Jesus never went to a pool in Bethsaida. But in about 1960, a discovery was made that in the city of Jerusalem there was a pool. And they used to say, well, it has five covered colonnades. And they said, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, the best they can have is probably four to cover the pool. So this certainly shows it was made up too. But surprisingly enough, that pool that they found in Jerusalem that's near the sheep gate, that's still a sheep gate today, was a double pool. So it had four colonnades with one colony going down the middle that divided the two sides of the pool. Well, what do you know? Don't take on John is what I have to say. Um, so, but what we learn here is that Jesus connects with human need. He didn't go to the center of the festival. He went to this pool. It's interesting, probably in your Bibles, you jump from verse 3 to verse 5, and probably you have a footnote that says that there's a verse 4 down in the footnote, part of 3 and 4, and this is uh, an explanation that there used to be, it was thought that there was an angel that came down and stirred the waters, and that if you got in the water first, you would be healed. Uh, in our most reliable manuscripts, that, that verse explanation is not found. But in some of our more uh, widespread, less reliable manuscripts, it is found. It probably does ring true with what is described here. There was a reason that uh, the lame and the blind were uh, paralyzed were laying around the pool because there was some kind of hope for healing. And Jesus goes to this place because it is a place of great need. No one in the, at, at the pool seems to have been expecting Jesus to show up. Even as you notice when we read that Jesus shows up and asks the man, do you want to get well? And the man talks about, well, no one's there to help him get into the pool. This man has no idea who Jesus is. This man has not heard the stories of Jesus' miracles and that he makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. He has no expectation that Jesus is going to do anything. He's just telling him about the situation, that he's at the pool and that he can't get in when the water's stirred. One of the things we should notice is that Jesus goes to this pool and there are a lot of lame, there are a lot of blind, and there are a lot of paralyzed. This is a place of great human need. And sometimes we read it kind of without realizing the gravity of the situation. This is a, a paraplegic. That means he's paralyzed from the neck down where he... He's lame, completely lame. And in that day, the obstacles of daily life would have been horrific. They are certainly horrific in our day. They would be even more intensified in that day. 
Paraplegics in our day struggle with mobility and livelihood and social interaction just to begin the list. Consider the problems of this person in terms of hygiene. Paraplegics frequently do not have bladder and bowel control. Taking these issues together can build a portrait of a man's life that is in a terrible state. People supported him. He made his living probably from begging and probably from family members giving him support. But notice he says that he's at the pool and he has no friends to help him get into the pool. Jesus is coming to the people that are in great need. This kind of person, people stay away from. And that's why it says in verse 7 that I have no one to help me. Among the many at Bethsaida looking for healing that day, Jesus selects this particular one. And this particular one is a difficult case. Jesus doesn't reach out to those who are spiritually on the margins, but similar to us and like us. He's going to the hard cases, in the hard places. And we must see that we, as followers of Jesus, must meet people's needs, even in the hard places. I'm reminded of uh, a family, uh, a husband and wife that came to our church in Chicago, uh, the husband was a paraplegic, and uh, we realized shortly uh, upon their being in our church that the, the wife was carrying a gigantic load. And so there were th four guys in our church that made a commitment to go to the house, to, to their house, every morning and every evening. When they'd arrive in the mornings, they would help him get out of bed, get him cleaned up, get him dressed, and ready for the day. When they went to their house at the evening, they would get him out of his clothes, get him cleaned up, and into bed, ready for the night. And they did this without stopping. It was a tremendous thing for our church to see our people caring for one another. It made, uh, it made an impact on people who knew people in our church, that there were people that cared for people in that way. Jesus still works through people that are his people, who care for people who are in grave need. That should be a part of the heartbeat that we have as we seek to engage the world around us with the message of Jesus. So first, we learn the importance of connecting with human need by Jesus' example. Second, we learn the importance of offering God's grace as an open invitation. And what do I mean by that? Well, as we look at this passage, we have to recognize that Jesus steps into relationship with this paraplegic even though he doesn't know Jesus at all. He has no expectations about Jesus. And then Jesus heals him. Jesus extends God's grace to him. And then he disappears. Jesus doesn't extend God's grace to them 
and expect an immediate response so as to warrant any further grace or any further relationship. He just is all in in caring for and providing for and giving to this paraplegic. Now certainly Christ is inviting him to respond to who he is and what he's doing. And we see this later is in, chapter, in verse 14. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. So Jesus does pursue him. Jesus is inviting and offering an invitation to enter into the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the life of God. But he doesn't tie his response, his gracious kindness, his healing power to the paraplegic on the basis of the man's response to him. So there's something important for us to learn as believers who are engaging with people around us. That we should love and care for people. Even if they don't respond to the message of Jesus. Because we work in concert with God's work. We're not the conduit that for sure guarantees that there will be conversion or transformation or new life. And we don't tie those kinds of expectations to our love and our regard and our service to other people. We give love and regard and service to other people because God fills us with love. Because God's grace has overwhelmed us. And we become overflowing to the people around us. And Jesus really is just modeling God's grace when he heals the paraplegic. Because isn't it true that God abundantly gives to all people, believers or not, gifts of grace and life and opportunity and, 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 and opportunities and healing and, and uh, joys and blessing? And he doesn't give those only if they respond to him. He gives them out of the abundance of his kindness and his heart. And therefore, we as believers, when we're representing the gospel, when we're sharing the good news, when we're trying to show God's grace, we need to do it with an attitude of open invitation. For that's exactly how Jesus responds to this paraplegic. We learn the importance of offering God's grace as an open invitation. Of course, we do look at this verse 14. It's, it's a fascinating little phrase because we've, we've wondered about it. Um, what, what we begin to see in this passage is that this is becoming a, a, a trick passage. This is not a trick passage, but a trick uh, event in Jesus' life. Because there's not only the need and his desire to show that he is the Savior, that, he, that he's offering God's life to all who will come and believe and trust in him, but also he has to face this resistance. And this resistance is the religious organization, this, the idea that they think they have a, a, a corner on God's economy and desires. And so they've even developed a bunch of rules and regulations. There are 39 rules as to how one should not break the Sabbath. And the last, the 39th rule, was that you are not to carry your bedding from one place to another, specifically talking to this situation. 
And notice in verse 11 and 12, I just think it's fascinating. I want to remind you of it. So the religious leaders come to him and said, it is the Sabbath. The law forgives you to carry your mat. That's in the end of verse 10. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who he was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. But just notice that verse 11 and verse 12, they blow right by the fact that he's been healed after 38 years. And they're pointing out the idea, well, who, how dare someone tell you to pick up your mat and walk? That's not being blinded. I don't know. So Jesus does go and find the man. And he has no real perception of who Jesus is. I think when this story ends, we don't know that he really came to trust Jesus. The story doesn't tell us. I have a belief that he did at some point, but I, by the end of this story, we don't know for sure. And so, therefore, I'm emphasizing again the need to offer God's grace as an open invitation not as if you respond, you get more, but that God loves you and cares for you and is inviting you to come into the life he offers. And that's fundamentally Jesus' statement in verse 14. See you are well again. He's nailing down the fact that this wasn't a temporary situation. God dramatically healed the paraplegic after 38 years you are well you are transformed then jesus says stop sinning or something worse may happen to you very kind of confusing words but i think that jesus is making the invitation god was gracious to him god healed him christ brought him back to health now don't stay in the state you were in. See that a Savior has arrived on the scene. That Jesus is here and his power has been displayed in your life. And that you were on a road of sin and self-sufficiency and destruction. But now God has provided a new way, a new opportunity. Trust in him. Believe in him and follow him. Or you will experience calamity. And I think worse will happen to you is that God will have poured out his grace on his life and healed him of this terrible disease. And now he can get up and walk and get a job and, and enjoy life. But then when death comes and he stands before God, he never will have trusted the Savior. Oh, that that wouldn't happen. And Jesus is offering the invitation. Don't continue sinning. Or something worse will happen to you. And then verse 15, the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now he knows who he is. So maybe he's on the road of understanding and coming to know. But the backdrop to all of this story is really the hope of the religious leaders to capture Jesus in breaking the Sabbath. And if he breaks the Sabbath, it will result in Numbers chapter 14 says... You must stone the one who breaks the Sabbath. I think it's a plan, the first plan, to get rid of Jesus. 
But what we see here in verse 16 through 18 is that we learn that at, uh, as the moment arises, there comes a time when we must speak profound truth. And this whole chapter brings the confrontation to an end with verses 16 through 18. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father always, is always at work in this very day, and I am working, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was called to account. The opportunity, the moment came, and Jesus in the strongest, most clearest way claims for himself divine prerogative. Claims for himself being the, the, the absolute representative of God in God's work, in God's ministry. Jesus' words, my father, in verse 17, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working, is a claim to absolute divinity. Because the Jewish people in their religious system knew that God doesn't really take a day of rest because the world is still maintained on Sabbath days. Because crops still grow and life still happens. Actually, people still die and babies are still born on the Sabbath day. Therefore, they understood God as not really working because the world and its maintenance is in the, the realm of God's normal course of living. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know that you understand God to be able to work on the Sabbath. Well, you should know this even more. As my Father works, so too I am working. God, uh, Jesus claims that he is the divine Son of God, that he is one of the Godhead. And actually, as you look through the rest of this chapter, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, it's really Jesus' defense of that unique relationship and what I say is we learn that at mo as moments come, we must speak the profound truth of God. As we engage with the world, we must not back off of the truth that Jesus is the one and only Savior. The pressure of the world is great. The world and people outside the church don't like the idea that we say all truth is defined by Jesus. Because he is the truth. He is the way and the life. Now, we don't have to say this in a way that's derogatory or demeaning, but we do have to say it. We have to maintain it. We have to point people to who Jesus is and the only hope of salvation that he offers. So as we engage with the world, as we talk to friends and family and neighbor, as we seek to be involved in taking the gospel outside the walls of our church, we must focus on the importance of connecting with the needs of people. Second, we must learn the importance of offering God's grace as a real invitation. 
It's not, their response is not tied to the offer. God has freely and abundantly made the offer. We should make the offer as well. And third, we learn that as moments come, we must speak the truth about Jesus, that he is the one and only Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of life. Lord, we know that in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, in our selfishness, we scrape and claw and work to establish our own kingdoms, to support ourselves. But deep down we know that we are broken and that we are wretched, that we are disobedient, that we are selfish. And Lord, you have sent the Lord Jesus, you have sent your Son to show us our brokenness, but also to remind us of our worthiness because he came to be our deliverer and our Savior and our Lord. And because of him, we have life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that reflects the wonder of the good news of Jesus, that we are broken, yes, indeed, but we are loved, and we are redeemed by the one and only Jesus Christ. And this is a message that the world needs to hear, that our brothers and sisters need to hear, that our family members need to hear, that our neighbors, our co-workers. This is the message. This is the, the life that we pray would flow out of us and touch those whom we know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.